far of wearing the Reformed t-shirt. Reformation Sunday, Pastor Chris had on Luther. Last week, Michael had Spurgeon, and I'm sporting Calvin today, because I didn't choose the thug life. The thug life chose me unconditionally. Go ahead and be seated. Our, our theme today is Providence, and it's also Providence that I'm wearing this shirt. I forgot to order it till Wednesday, and Amazon said it's not coming till Sunday, but lo and behold, the hand of God guided that t-shirt, and it arrived yesterday. Here we are, Providence Community Church part of the Sovereign Grace denomination. You got Providence, Sovereign Grace, a church filled with many Reformed folks who believe and hold to the precious doctrines of grace. And I stand before you today having been moved so deeply and impacted so greatly by the grace of God and his providence in my own life that when we decided to change the kids' names, their middle names, along with their last names, when I adopted them, I chose Sovereign Grace for Brooklyn. Apologize if I get emotional, different parts this morning. But I'm convinced that there's very few things that are as deeply impactful and foundational in our daily lives as the providence and goodness of God. Chose Sovereign Grace for Brooklyn, and we weren't in a Sovereign Grace church at that, just for the record, at that time. So I had nothing to do with it. We know and believe in God's sovereignty. And yet there's some folks here this morning that need to hear and rest in this. God is sovereign. He is in control. He's still in control. He's got this. He's got you. Some some of you just need to hear that this morning. And, and some of you know that, and you need to hear, God is good. He's sovereign and he's good. He's so good. He loves you, and he always has your best in mind. You know he's sovereign, but you also need to rest in his goodness. Well, we're going to be in Acts 16, continuing on where Michael left off last week. Acts 16. Verses 6 through 15. If you've got your Bibles, you can follow with me. If not, it should be up on the screen. Go ahead and read that. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Somothrace, and on the day following, to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside 
where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was, li- was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Did you? Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Lord, thank you so much that we can gather here, that we can hear your word, that you are sovereign and good. Lord, we would ask that you would be here sovereignly, that you would show us your goodness in a deeper way this morning, that we could rest in you, learn to trust you more, and see you working in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you notice the providence of God in the narrative we just read? Paul and Silas, along with their new assistant, Timothy, who, if you remember, has proven that he now has some skin in the game. Michael's not here to laugh at that. They've been traveling on their second missionary journey. We can gather that Paul had the intention or desire to minister to those in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. But we read that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go and preach the gospel there. So they continue their travel northward, attempting to go into Bithynia. But once again, we read that they were prevented by the Spirit of Jesus. So instead, they kind of crept along the coastline and ended up in Troas. Let's back up a second. I was struck by the fact that God forbid them to go into Asia and then did not permit them to go into Bithynia. We skim right over those verses and typically don't think too much about it. But let's take a look at what's really going on. Paul and his team wanted to go into Asia to preach the gospel to an unreached people group. He wanted people that had never heard the gospel to be saved. This is a, this is a good thing. This is, a very good, this is the best thing. How can we make sense then of God preventing that? First, although we are called to be godly, called in a godly way to be all things to all men in order to win some, we're not called to all people, nor will we win all people. Sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's the reality that we live in. It It ought to point to our humility and our reliance on God. We can't be, we can't win everybody. We're not called to the whole world individually. Has anybody seen the movie Machine Gun Preacher? <laughs> you don't have to admit it. I'm not promoting it from the pulpit. I'm just asking. It's not family friendly. It's based on a true story. And in that movie, uh, Gerard Butler, an ex-convict recently released from prison, dramatically gets saved and then ends up going and building and running an orphanage in Africa. Um, he, it's a great thing at first, but he gets to the point later on where he's just obsessed with helping the kids there. Everything else is pushed aside. His family's back in the States. They're completely neglected. He's angry at the church in America because nobody seems to care. And he just sees an ocean of needy kids in Africa that he wants to help, that he feels like he can't do enough for, 
And that's because he can't. He can't. God wasn't calling him to neglect his family in the States and save every needy kid in Africa. He was called to love and care for his family, invest in the children that the Lord gave him in Africa, and trust the Lord with the rest. And that's all any of us can do. Do we recognize our own finitude? I practice that word. Finitude. Our finiteness. Our smallness. I don't know about you, but I struggle daily just to finish my own mundane checklist. I'm not, a, I'm not the Savior. I'm not even the Savior of my own country. I'm called to be faithful in what the Lord gives me. And sometimes that's humbling when we are tempted to arrogantly think that he needs us. He needs us for a certain ministry. We're needed. Romans 12.3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And that certainly applies here. But here's the second almost opposing point. The main way that God works and moves in the world is through people. It's through us. Romans 10, 14 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So here we see God moving Paul and his missionary team to the people that God is calling them to preach to. Paul didn't preach to everyone. He wasn't a missionary to everyone. His mission was to select people and select places, select individuals. We, we know and recognize that there's a calling on those that come to Christ, those that receive the gospel, the elect. But there's also a calling and a moving by the hand of God on those that share the gospel as well, the preachers, the teachers, his church. Notice that even in Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. We're told to think of ourselves as sober judgment, and that, that pushes a posture of humility. But in that humility, there's a recognition that God's given us gifts. He's given us faith. He's given all of his children faith and gifts. Varying gifts, varying levels of faith. And those are to be used for the edification and building up of the church or for God's glory. We're not to have a false humility. He has given us gifts. He does use us. Humility says, recognizes that and says, I will use this for other people's good, for the church's good, for God's glory. Pastor Chris preached a sermon last year, I think, called uh, God Wrote Your Biography. Close. He wrote about biographies, and uh, the men last Wednesday had the privilege of rehearing some of those main points. The idea is that God has prepared every aspect of our lives leading up to this point. He's prepared us for our specific mission. We clearly see that with the Apostle Paul. We clearly see the Lord preparing him to be the missionary to the Gentiles. As we learn about Paul, that's not hard to see. It's harder for us to see that truth when it comes to our own lives. We just see a big mess, right? Here's the five main points that Pastor Chris laid out pertaining to that. Just a quick review. 
Number one is tribe. Our family background. What family were we raised in? How did that impact us? Number two is town. The place or places we've grown up and lived in. How, how did that impact us? Rural, urban, three, trade or career. What do we love to do and what have we or will we invest the most time in? Number four is teachers, early mentors. Who's impacted us the most in our lives? Who's left an imprint on us and shaped us? Number five is transgression, substantial sins and failures. God's not responsible for those things, but even in our sin, our transgressions, God can use that for, for the good of other people, for the good of the church, and for his glory. Even that's not an accident. None of those areas are accidents. The providential hand of God was there all along, molding and shaping us for the good works that he's prepared the hand for us beforehand for us to walk in, as Ephesians 2.10 says. So in our text, God's prepared Paul, and we watch as he's moved to where God wants him to be. This is the better. Paul was not called at this point to go to Asia or Bithynia. The better for him meant going to Macedonia. We'll circle back to this idea of the better later. But first, isn't it interesting the way that, that God uses to get Paul to Macedonia? At first, he has the doors shut, or God says no, in two different ways. So like a negative reaction. But then on the positive, Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come help us. God providentially moves his people where he wants them. And he uses all kinds of different means and methods, circumstances, and people. Paul, Paul takes his vision as confirmation that God wants them to head to Macedonia. Was this a supernatural vision? Like, uh, like the one that Peter had where God said, it's okay to preach to the Gentiles. The Gentiles can be saved. It, it may have been, and it seems to be, since the, the word vision is used, but what if it was just a dream? What if it was just a crazy dream that came about after Paul had too many burritos from Taco Bell the night before? And he had Macedonia on his brain anyway. The answer is that it doesn't make any difference. Because God uses even bad burritos from Taco Bell and crazy dreams to move his people. I'm not saying we should look to Taco Bell and bad dreams as guidance. We get into problems doing that. But he does use those things. He uses a lot of crazy things. And before that dream, he was stopped twice from going to two other places. How was he stopped? It's the first time the text says he was forbidden. And we easily read that and romanticize what that means. We picture the Holy Spirit saying to Paul, don't go there. In a deep voice, of course. The second time, the language changes a little, and it says the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them, which we easily romanticize as well. It could be that in one or both cases, the Holy Spirit did clearly speak to Paul. It could be. Wouldn't be surprising. But more than likely, the typical way that God works is circumstantially. If I had to speculate, I'd say they may have been heading toward Asia, and when they hit the border, 
They didn't have their vaccine passports in hand and had to turn around. Or perhaps that county was sh shut down to visitors because of a novel virus outbreak. I'm just kidding, but in all seriousness, these are the types of things that God uses to move his people. Has anyone ever been prevented from, say, going to China as missionaries because of COVID restrictions? Anybody? No? No? Come on, I want to see that hand. That, that's providence. God wanted you here now for other reasons, for better reasons. But it's not just in the big things. What we really need to begin to develop, the eyes to see, is God working in these types of ways in the everyday, mundane, frustrating things of our lives? When I have a deadline, working on a furniture project, I got a deadline for a customer. So I'm under the gun, and I'm almost done, and I run out of paint. Just I just need a tiny bit of paint, and I run out. It's really hard not to lose my mind and <laughs> be super frustrated. But it's in those times, especially when I can see it, and rest in it, that God has me stop at the local hardware store that I never go to because it's closer, and I meet the owner and strike up a conversation, a conversation I would have never otherwise had, a meeting I wouldn't have had if this had not happened to get me there. If we could begin to see God is constantly working every day, not just the big things. We, I mean, we struggle with the big things, but we, we at least acknowledge God's moving in big ways. He's moving in small ways, too. We are God's people, and our mission field is made up of all the different aspects of our lives. God is constantly moving us every day. And what's the main way he wants to use us? Notice when Paul has the vision of the man from Macedonia saying, come help us, Paul knows, assumes, He's not, he's not saying, come help us get more water. He's saying, come preach the gospel. We need the gospel. The help that he needed was the gospel. That's what we're called to. We live in a crazy, divisive world right now. And it's easy to jump, on one, jump in with one mob or the other. And just go with the, go with the crowd. And I believe that the gospel, I, I think the gospel is so big that it, it says that we must stand for truth. The gospel is not simply this little thing. We do stand for truth. We have a responsibility to our country as citizens, right, to stand for truth and stand for, for what's right. But the most important, the only true, only real lasting hope and help that we can offer anyone, the real solution is the gospel. With every circumstance, with every person, the gospel is fundamentally the answer and fundamentally what we're called to. Do we see it? Can we rest in it? Well, our narrative continues. And Paul and his crew hop a ship to, to head for Macedonia. Uh, Luke's the author of Acts, and it would seem that he joined them in verse 10 because the language changes from third person to first person, and it starts saying we. They sailed from Troas to Somothrace, which is an island in the Aegean Sea. 
about halfway between Asia Minor and the Greek mainland. And they stayed there overnight to avoid the dangers of sailing during the night. From there, they sailed to the port city of Neapolis and then to Philippi. Philippi, interestingly enough, was named, uh, Phil, or Philip, this, Philippi was named for Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, interestingly. This is a Roman colony, and it's here that we see our first European convert, Lydia. Uh, when the Jewish community did not have 10 men that were head of households, if they didn't have enough men to form a synagogue, they would historic, traditionally meet uh, under open air by a river to hold a service and pray. Paul and his mission team know that, so they head out to find the prayer meeting. Where they meet, a group of ladies, one of which is Lydia, we're told she's a seller of purple fabrics, implying that she was probably decently financially well off, and that she, much like Cornelius was, much like Cornelius was, is a God-fearer, because she was a God-worshipper, but she hadn't heard about Jesus yet. God had already prepared Lydia to receive the gospel, and as Paul spoke, she responded to what she heard. She's saved, her and her household get baptized, and right away she's ready to go to work. She invites the missions team to her house, which is probably pretty big, and says, if you deem me worthy, please come and stay. And they did. But do you see the crimson cord of God's providence running through all the events of the story? We see that God instilled desire within Paul to build and encourage the church. He puts feet to that desire, but God closes the path Paul tries to take. But then God positively directs Paul through a vision and opens wide the way. Ultimately, this journey ends with Lydia being saved and the beginning of the European church, which ultimately leads to us. But we look at that pretty picture after the fact. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? It's not how it looked for Paul and his team. We can see that they did a fantastic job of trusting God, that they were trusting him in real time. These events took place in real time, and in real time, their lives were met with pain and frustrations, relational conflict, persecution, violence, in times when they had no clue where they were going. And it felt like they were spinning their wheels and going in circles because sometimes they were. That's our lives. None of us get a roadmap for our life up front. None of us get the bullet points for what God's doing ahead of time sometimes, a lot of times, not after the fact either. We don't always know after events what he was doing. We face pain, trials, relational conflict, sometimes persecution, sometimes violence, and many times not a clue where, where we're ultimately headed. We're feeling like we're just spinning our wheels. But hear this. God is in control. He is sovereign over all of it. He is working in all of the details of our lives, our very messy and very broken lives. We can rest in that. We can rest in him. And if we can really begin to believe that like we say we do, and really begin to look for his fingerprints in the midst of our messes, it will eliminate so much of our anxiety. And it will bring so much more hope and purpose our lives, to the daily grind and all the things that 
once were frustrating. We can see God's fingerprints, his movements. But it still hurts. It still hurts, right? The pain is still painful. Loss still brings sorrow. And this broken world and our broken lives are still broken. Yes, that is true. God is sovereign over it all. He really is in control. But that fact does not produce some kind of fatalistic hyper-Calvinism that lacks care and emotion. We recognize that the world is not as it ought to be and not as it will be someday. So what's the difference? What's the difference then? The difference is that our God is not only sovereign. It doesn't stop there. It's not simply enough to say he's in control. Some of us recognize that. And it's like, yeah, I know. And what about this? I don't trust you, God, because of this. It's not enough. He's also good. He's so good. He loves his children. He always has our best in mind. He's working all things together for our good. He knows what is best and best for us and only ever allows bad to happen, ever. Only ever. It only allows the best things to ever happen to us. It's crazy to say out loud. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that everything will work out for circumstantially the best. Those that love God, who are called by him, everything works together for their good, for the good. Always. He loves us. He's in control, but he's also good. We're called to weep with those who weep. Why? Because that is Christ-likeness. Jesus is with us even and especially in the midst of our worst pain and trials. And because he loves us so much, because he is so good, he will use even those painful things for our good. We can trust him and rest in him. Well, in closing, I'd like to tell two stories that illustrate the goodness and providence of God in this broken world. I mentioned adopting the kids in my introduction, and as providence would have it, today is our, today is our three-year anniversary, our adoption day, when I adopted Ashley's kids and officially made them mine. <laughs> So today we celebrate, kind of odd that it landed on today, but being able to adopt them was not something that, I, that we ever saw as even a possibility originally. When uh, we were first married, the kids would see, still see their dad, their biological dad, every other weekend, which probably should not have been the case since there had been known abuse that had run through the court system the consequences of which were pretty little. And so eventually he got his visitation rights back. Well, we were willing to forgive and move on. Unfortunately, we found out that there was still abuse going on.
worse abuse. So we did everything within our power to do something about it. Tried to file reports, run it through the court system, but we couldn't gain any traction. Eventually, six, six months had passed, and some friends and advisors said, you should consider hiring a lawyer and going through the family court system. If you can't get anything to stick on the legal side, try to change parental rights through the family court system. Well, we didn't necessarily have the money to do that. But even more than that, I felt like the Lord was saying, rest in me, I'll fight this for you outside the court. And the only way I can put it is that I felt that way. I didn't have any evidence to say that God had shown me that, per se. Felt like he was saying, wait. And after months have passed, that's a sticky place to be in when your friends and advisors are, are now rolling their eyes going, you're crazy. Do something. And you're going, I felt like the Lord said to wait. He's going to fight it outside the court. <laughs> Six months later, after having ha- had to think through my personal responsibility as a protector, thoughts like, is violence appropriate? Is technically illegally withholding the kids the right move? And coming back with the answer of God saying, no, trust me. Six months later, we get a call from his lawyer, the biological dad's lawyer, and he says, or she says, he said that if, you, if Jay wants to adopt the kids, he's willing to sign over rights. Out of the blue, never been a conversation, nothing pushing it there, completely unexpectedly, his lawyer calls and says, he's willing to sign over rights if Jay will adopt the kids. Praise the Lord, right? God... We could, hindsight is twenty twenty at that point. We could see what God had been doing. We could see he was fighting for us. But don't miss this. The path to get there was ugly and painful. We had no idea where we were going or where we were going to end up. And even after the adoption, much pain and ugliness remains. To be clear, God has sovereignly done what is absolutely best, absolutely best for the kids in our family. Period, full stop, as they say. This is the kind of stuff we have to rest in. God has done what is absolutely best in these circumstances for the kids in my family. It was ugly and painful to get there, and there are still ugliness, and still pain today. Because remember, we live in a broken world, and it's in and through the mess and pain that God works and moves. We rejoice in what he's done and trust him completely in it. And yet we weep. Yet we still weep because of the sorrow and pain that come from broken families. From abuse. From biological abandonment. 
God was with us then, working in the ugly and unknown, and he's with us now, working in the ugly and unknown. There are questions and pain and struggles many of us will carry our whole lives. Some of us will have unanswered questions our whole lives, struggles our whole lives. Despite the fact that God has done what's best, despite the fact that this is good, but even in that, God is present. He's working even in those questions, even in those struggles. He is good. He will use them. We have to learn to rest in that. And I want to end with a short but powerful story that came out of our community group two weeks ago. We usually start by opening with what God's been doing in our lives, the struggles, the prayer requests, the praises. And one of those sharing told of the brutal Monday and Tuesday that they had had. Moms, you know that feeling. Kids are driving you insane. You're this close to literally losing it. And life just won't slow down or get less chaotic. While seeking some sanity and a little help, Wednesday, this person spent some time with her mom. She shared that the relationship had historically been strained and has been a source of struggle and prayer requests, her relationship with her mom. But there came a moment Wednesday. I haven't been able to say this last part without getting emotional yet. There came a moment Wednesday where they were able to connect in a way that they maybe never had. It seemed like some walls were broken down, at least temporarily. There were some things realized and said that never had been. And it was an amazing an unexpected blessing and praise. But she said this to us, and I thought it was so powerful and moving. Monday and Tuesday led to Wednesday. I wouldn't have had Wednesday without the struggles of Monday and Tuesday. Wow. Does that remind you of something? Yes, we would not have Sunday without Friday. It's the dark and gruesome death of the Son of God on a Friday that brought the hope and life and resurrection, the defeat of death and the offer of grace and life everlasting for us on Sunday. Praise God. A dark Friday led to a glorious Sunday. Let's think of that and remember what our Savior has done for us this morning as we take communion together. Matthew 26, 27 says, While they were